Welcome to episode 444 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to the show by playing a little music from the band The Nick Adams. This instrumental is for the song Jet Jaguar. There's a reason why I'm playing a Jet Jaguar song this time around on this episode. No, it's not because we're talking about Jet Jaguar per se, but Jet Jaguar does come up at least once in the conversation that I'm having with Todd Brown from The Haunted Cinema. The Haunted Cinema is one of my favorite websites that you know speaks to me about being a monster kid, collecting monster movie stuff, that sort of thing. And Todd's just a great guy. I've met him at the past two monster bashes that I've been to. And, you know, he was eager to talk with me about a 1970s vampire movie from Japan. That's right. Back in episode 413... I spoke with Orrin Gray about The Vampire Doll. In episode 432, I spoke with Kenneth Height about the movie Lake of Dracula. And this time around, we're going to be tackling the third of the so-called bloodthirsty trilogy, Toho's Evil of Dracula from 1974. There is a connection between Evil of Dracula and Jet Jaguar, which we'll talk about when I sit down to talk with Todd about the film. Now, this was a recording that took place many, many months ago, much earlier this year. In fact, it happened to be for Monster Bash. So uh, I've been sitting on this one for a little while. So I'm really excited to finally get it out to you guys and gals. Now, of course, this episode would not be complete without a bedtime story from Professor Frenzy. He sent another one in. It's about one of my favorite monster types. I think it's a good one. And then we also have Kenny's look at famous monsters of film land. And, you know, it was also one of my favorite segments that he's ever done for the show. I'm excited to get into all of this. So why don't we roll into, well, the bedtime story, the look at famous monsters. You know, all of it right after this. Ages ago, in a long-lost part of the world, the Mayans worshipped a terrifying goddess. To her, men offered their strength and their devotion. Women offered the beauty of their bodies. Al-Tiki, the immortal monster! Today, courageous adventurers, dedicated scientists of both sexes, begin the exploration of recently discovered caverns buried in the very womb of the earth. From space beyond space comes force beyond measurement, energizing this monstrous mass of man-eating protoplasm that devours every living thing it touches. When her mate appears in the sky, the power of Kaltiki will destroy the world. You can believe what you like. Kaltiki's been reborn. Anything on this earth, stop Kaltiki, the immortal monster. How often has this happened to you? 
You're on your way home after a long day when suddenly tragedy strikes. No human mind could imagine the enormous destructive power of this maddened, killing thing. Yes, sir, there's a big lizard back there and he's heading his way. Now get aboard! It's the kind of thing which can ruin your weekend. To prevent catastrophe, you need the Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack. This book features extensively researched methods to help you survive a giant monster event. You'll discover which vehicle you should use for making your escape, which method of counterattack is best for specific types of monsters. Hydrogen weapons, capable of wiping cities, countries off the face of the earth, are completely ineffective against this creature from the skies and what common mistakes people make while fighting back. So pick up your copy of The Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack by Anthony Wendell today on Amazon. You can thank us by surviving. Why, hey, hey, what are you looking for under a tombstone in broad daylight? Shh, you'll scare her away. Scare her away? Who? What? What, what, what can you scare away here in a cemetery? My ghoul friend. She's the ghost in the invisible bikini. <laughs> What are you putting me on? Herbie, I know you're broad-minded, but this is ridiculous. No, I'm serious. And you should see her since she traded her bedsheet for a bikini. Well, you must enjoy looking around for a real nothing broad. It's really just that American International is inviting everyone out to the graveyard for a blood-curdling blast with the ghost in the invisible bikini to see Tommy Kirk, Deborah Wally, Aaron Kincaid, Harvey Lembeck, and Jesse White with Nancy Sinatra, and guest stars Basil Rathbone, Boris Karloff, and Susan Hart in the ghost in the invisible bikini in Path A Color and Panavision. Now, you would have to get commercial. Now you scared her away. Ooh. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. My name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I'm going to tell you a story from EC Horror Comics. Today's story is Werewolf. It is from the Vault of Horror number 14, the August-September issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Jules Pfeiffer and Harry Harrison. So sit back and relax while I tell this blood-chilling tale. A group of climbers were ascending a peak in the Carpathian Mountains. Their guide was John Bodzla, a Romanian. In the group were an American couple, John and Edna Farnham, two English college students, Reggie and Eric Smythe, and Victor Zorak, a man from Transylvania. Bodzla, the guide, confided in John Farnham that he believed Victor Zorak was a werewolf. His palms were hairy, his eyebrows met in the middle, and his ring finger was the same length as his middle finger. These are sure signs of a werewolf, Bodzla claimed. The American poo-pooed his suggestion. Farnham told one of the Englishmen about his story. Both of the men thought it was absurd. That night, everyone went to bed, but Farnham heard a noise and went out to investigate. But it was only Bodzla, who wanted to give him silver crosses for protection against Zorak when he turns into a werewolf. Farnham minced no words in telling the guide how stupid he felt he was being and went back to bed. The next day, the group continued up the mountain. At night, they set up camp. The moon was going to be full this evening. The Farnums and Zorak sat around the fire, and Bodzla told the Englishman that Zorak's eyes glowed red. The student said it was just a reflection of the fire. 
Then why was he looking so intently at Mrs. Farnham's palm? Surely he sees the sign of the pentagram. Having had enough of this foolishness, the group went to their tents to sleep. Suddenly in the night, a blood-curdling scream rang out. Mrs. Farnham was missing and everyone went looking for her. Everyone but Zorak, however, he was missing. They searched the mountainside until one of the Englishmen stumbled upon poor Edna Farnham's mutilated body. There were also wolf tracks in the snow. Her husband, John, insisted on continuing so he could kill the wolf. Luckily, Bodsla had melted down the crosses into silver bullets. The team trapped the wolf at the top of the mountain. The beast attacked them, and after a while, Bodsla was able to get a shot off and killed the animal. Bodsla asked if everyone was all right. Sure they were, they said. One Englishman said he was only slightly bitten. The other said he just had a minor scratch. Farnham said he just had a claw scrape on his leg. Bodsla was aghast. Don't you understand what that means? When a werewolf bites or scratches someone, they turn into a werewolf themselves. As he told him this, under the full moon, he looked up and realized his three companions had all turned into werewolves. The end. I hope you enjoyed that snow-capped thriller. As I read this story, I was looking for the inevitable EC horror twist. Would the werewolf be Mrs. Farnham? The guide himself might have been one without knowing it. Or maybe something out of the blue could be going on. Nope. From the very start, the story is totally telegraphed. Man cries werewolf, everyone poo-poos him until someone dies and then the werewolf attacks. Maybe you could consider the three men turning into werewolves at the top of the mountain to be a twist, but it wasn't an impressive one. To be honest, the story was underwhelming. It feels unfinished somehow. The art was straightforward, though the characters were a little hard to tell apart, particularly Mr. Farnham and Bodsla, who can only be distinguished by the thickness of their mustaches. Mrs. Farnham is only in three panels, doesn't have a single line of dialogue, and we don't even see her when she's killed. Zorak doesn't have any dialogue either, and can be distinguished in just four panels, and I couldn't tell you which of the students was Reggie and which was Eric. One thing that's unique is that this isn't a werewolf story set in an English moor or a castle. It's a snowy mountain locale, which is very different than many of these types of stories. Though when I saw that Jules Pfeiffer had done some of the art, I was expecting something unique, but alas no. The art was serviceable, but not special. If you're interested in a copy of The Vault of Horror Volume 1, the book can be purchased on Amazon, and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can find me on my podcast, The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics. And on the same feed, we have Memory Minute, a nostalgia podcast, and Frenzy Peace Theater, where we recap and discuss classic comic book stories. You can also catch me on Twitter at Professor Frenzy, and search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube, where you can find The Professor Frenzy Show and some exciting projects we have coming up. Stay tuned and thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Evil will have its finest hour when the grave opens and Count Yorga returns to walk among the living. Wouldn't it be something if vampires did exist? They do. Not in the classical sense, of course, but uh, there are those who thirst for blood. In fact, thrive on it. Can the dead desire? Can the lifeless lust? Can a vampire fall in love and give a normal kiss? Cynthia, what have I told you I possess the power to give you eternal life? Right now, this very moment. I'd say you were marvelously mad. Count Yorga returns from the land of the dead to seek a mate from among the living. 
This time it might be you. One never knows when he might encounter some of the more unusual truths that exist in this world. See The Return of Count Yorga, the most unearthly love story ever filmed. Here is a vampire picture you can really get your teeth into. In color, rated GP. Imagine the world around you is nothing but an illusion. Creatures of legend wage endless wars between shadow and light, but you never see it. Even now, dark forces threaten reality as we know it, but most people never know they exist. This is the world I walk in. I am called Byron, and these are my chronicles. The Byron Chronicles, available at ericbosbypresents.com, iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere else podcasts are available. Enemy spy at large, an invisible man. It's, it's amazing. Oh, you will be of great help to us. Who is this terrifying Phantom Commando? What is his amazing mission? See the Invisible Agent, suggested by H.G. Wells' Invisible Man, starring Ilona Massey and John Hall, with Peter Lorre, Sir Cedric Hardwick, J. Edward Bromberg, Albert Bosserman, in the most amazing story of our times. Stop! Stay now. Don't let him get away. Gesundheit. Who is there? Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at famous sponsors of Filmland. Today we will continue our issue-by-issue look at films covered with FM number 10 from January of 1961. A female phantom, a flesh-eating monster, and prehistoric behemoths. These are the ingredients of a trio of horror films which are presently paralyzing picture-goers in darkened auditoriums throughout the land. Thus begins an article about three current releases that are previewed. In this six-page article with nine pictures, we take a look at Bird Eye Gordon's Tormented, Irwin Allen's Lost World, and Kaltiki the Immortal Monster. It begins with this introduction of Tormented. Hans for the money. The sea is death's domain. The souls of the drowned seek rest in vain. The cupboards of Davy Jones' locker contain many skeletons still restless with the simulacrum of life. Such are these are the tormented. Richard Carlson, too, is tormented. He fought a frog horror in the maze, a xenomorph nightmare in It Came From Outer Space, even the creature from the Black Lagoon itself. Now he battles an inner horror, his own relentless conscience, for he permitted a woman who loved him to plunge to her death. And now not only does he have pangs of remorse to contend with, 
worse. He has a semi-materialized ectoplasm of a woman scorned who scourges him. It continues with a short synopsis that stops short at spoiling the finale. On to The Lost World, which begins with this. Two for the show. This is the second time The Lost World has been found. In 1924, it astounded the silent screen, the stereophonic sounds in the theaters of the nation coming from the throats and astonished viewers who gasped at the black and white sight of prehistoric pterodactyls, brontosaurus, allosaurus, and a variety of animated dinosaurs coming to life. Today, the lost world rides again, this time in color, widescreen, and sound, as Professor George Edward Challenger, portrayed by Claude Rains, heads a helicoptic exploration team that turns back the clock to a land that time forgot, where Jurassic monsters from 150 million BC still rule a virtually inaccessible jungle plateau. After a brief look at the plot of Lost World, we move on to Kaltiki. Here is what the article had to say. Three to make Roddy. Like man, this Kaltiki, the undying monster, is something from Mummiesville. When an American named Bob, who is part of an archaeological expedition in the Mexican jungle, is lowered with diving equipment into a subterranean pool, he soon gives the alarm signal. But although he is hastily pulled to the surface, he is already dead, and his body has been mummified. The tentacles of a monster emerge from the black waters, seizing several natives. A German member of the exploratory team, Max, fights off the creature, but where it touched his body, he is horribly disfigured. Max returns to Mexico City to recuperate. In the hospital, it is discovered that the tissue from the tentacle multiplies under radiation. In 607 AD, a radioactive meteoroid passed near the Earth, triggering the growth of a primitive flesh-eating cell structure which grew to such proportions that it menaced the Mayans, who deserted the town of Tikil, leaving it to Kaltiki, goddess of death. Now the radioactive stone from space is once again nearing Earth, nurturing the slumbering monster with its mutating rays. Kaltiki splits and multiplies and invades the country. Tanks and flamethrowers are rushed to combat this menace from Mayan times. In the midst of the Holocaust, Max goes mad and, if you want to find out what happens, dig up your four bits to go. Right after that is a look at the 1943 Phantom of the Opera with Claude Rains, which was promised last issue. In the midst of World War II, the Phantoms returned, a horror to take America's mind for a moment off horrors like Hitler and the Nazi beasts. The remake of Gaston LaRue's Phantom of the Opera was in Technicolor. It starred Claude Rains as the Phantom, known as Enrique Claudine, and it is interesting to note, featured one of the screen appearances of Fritz Leiber Sr., father of Fritz Leiber Jr., whose horror novel Conjurer Wife was recently seen as a teleplay. Lon Chaney Sr., of course, starred in the original Phantom of the Opera, and Lon Chaney Jr. starred in Weird Woman, adapted from a novel by Fritz Lieber Jr. in a magazine called Unknown Worlds. Strange are the ways of fate. And to add to that, we just watched Weird Woman during the Halloween MKR Film Festival. Is that creepy or what? The article then goes into the synopsis, which isn't much different from the first version, except for the fact that Christine is the Phantom's daughter, not his crush. Here is how the famous unmasking scene was described. But in the picture's climax, Christine unmasked the Scarface Claudine in a scene that brought screams as it did 18 years before. Although his makeup was nothing like Lon Chaney's, Claude Rains was a terrifying sight to behold. And not only did his daughter nearly faint, but all the faint-hearted people in the live theater audience. 
The article concludes with these comments. Lon Chaney and Claude Rains died in the role of the Phantom, but rumor has it that the Phantom of the Opera crushed to the earth will rise again in 1961, courtesy of Hammer Productions of England. Who will he be? Christopher Lee? Anton Differing? Lon Chaney Jr.? One thing's for certain, famous monsters faithful readers will be among the first human beings in the world to get the facts. Well, we know the answer is none of the above. Herbert Lom played the Phantom in the Hammer version. Of the films covered in this issue, we have heard about two on Monster Kid Radio. Kaltiki was the 161st film to be covered in episode 347 with Chris McMillan. And Phantom of the Opera was the 150th film covered in episode 332 with Dominic Lamses. Wait, those are the two people who were with Derek when they interviewed Roger Corman and Victoria Price. Strange are the ways of fate. Tormented and Lost World have yet to be covered. No worries, Derek. You can wait a little for these not-so-classics. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Well, since Kenny brought it up, yes, I did record with Roger Corman and Victoria Price at last month's H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival and Cthulhu Con. And Chris McMillan and Dominic Lamses were on that panel recording as well. It was a live episode of Monster Kid Radio. I am slowly working my way through that audio. There were some significant audio issues, technical difficulties that prevented me from plugging my trusty recorder into the audio equipment that was on hand in the EOD or Esoteric Order of Dagon building, or really it's just the Portland Senior Center. But we take it over that weekend for all the panels and such, and there were some technical issues. I know that there were people there recording the live podcast, and I've reached out repeatedly here on the podcast. I've reached out on Facebook and Twitter. If you were at the Lovecraft Film Festival and you happen to record even just a little bit of that live episode of Monster Kid Radio, please reach out to me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com because I would love to be able to incorporate what you recorded with the limited audio that I recorded to hopefully create a decent episode out of all of it. Of course, I'll give you credit and all that. Might even be able to dig something out of the Monster Kid Radio vault to uh, send your way as a way of saying thank you for helping us rescue this particular recording. It will be coming out eventually. Like I said, I do have some audio that I'm working on right now. It's just not the best quality. So stay tuned. Probably won't be dropping into the Monster Kid Radio feed until sometime next year, hopefully within the first quarter of next year. So fingers and tentacles crossed that I can actually pull it off. Two all-color, all-action hits. Here are the seven wonders of the world rolled into one fantastic adventure. Frankenstein, born again to rule in terror. A monster unleashed to conquer all who stand in his destructive path. Frankenstein Conquers the World stars Nick Adams as the American scientist versus Frankenstein incarnate with the strength of a thousand men, a phenomenon such as never seen before. See Frankenstein Conquers the World, astounding on the giant screen, also on the same program. Tarzan, man of the jungle, with only a lion, a leopard, and a chimp as his army, can they conquer the hired killers of the dealer in death? Cy Weintraub presents... Tarzan and the Valley of Gold. With Mike Henry and Nancy Kovac in Panavision and Color from American International Pictures. 
Dr. Tongue's I Had That Shot, 7129 Northeast Fremont Street. Vintage goofiness from years gone by. Sci-fi and fantasy memorabilia. We specialize in things your mother threw away. And some she didn't. Dr. Tongue's Toys. Out of the fiery depths of a mysterious alien planet comes the most horrifying experience in motion picture history. Never before has such a frightening, oozing mass of stark terror crept across the screen. Body Snatcher from Hell. I don't want to die! I don't want to die! strange world in outer space comes this fiendish vampire satisfying his sinister and evil lust by feasting on the blood of his victims. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. We're going to make another visit to the haunted cinema this week, ladies and gentlemen. We've got Todd Brown on the show, and we're going to close out our extended review we've been taking a while to get through them all the the bloodthirsty trilogy uh, it's time to wrap it up with evil of dracula with todd how's it going man it's going great it's going really good these movies man i'm telling you what they were a pleasant surprise a couple of the other guests were talking about how they had never really heard of them until the arrow release i was the same way i'm blown away just flat out blown away Right on. Yeah. And, and we'll dive into it. We'll talk mm-hmm. about it and what these movies mean and that sort of thing. But you know, we got to do it. We got to play the classic five, man. Awesome. I can't wait. 
It's one of my favorite parts of the show. I answer terribly, but everybody else does really well. So. Oh, come on. There are no wrong answers. There are no <laughs> wrong answers here, man. All right, so the Classic Five, for people who don't know, it's a game that we play here, a conversation starter, a way to kind of get things started. It's a deck of cards here, and I'm going to draw five cards from this deck. Each one of these cards has a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question? There are no wrong answers, like I said. Are you ready to play, Todd? I am ready to go. All right, the Classic Five, starting with the card number one right off the top. If you could swap places with any character from a classic monster movie, who would it be? Ooh, if I could swap places. You know, I probably wouldn't be anywhere near as cool, but uh, <laughs> I would like to be Van Helsing, Peter Cushing's Van Helsing um, in, in Horror of Dracula. Again, I probably wouldn't be anywhere near as cool or as, as, as athletic. I'd probably be killed, frankly, honest. But I think that would be awesome. Peter Cushing. Yep. <laughs> I got nothing. I, I, I love Peter Cushing. I got nothing. <laughs> I, I would put the horror in Horror of Dracula. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> All right, card number two. What's your favorite Val Luton film? Oh, it's got to be Cat People. It's so amazing. Across the centuries comes this exciting story of a modern girl cursed by an ancient legend. The legend of the Cat People. (laughs) Women whose kiss means death. Whose love turns them into vicious, snarling beasts of prey. I've been followed by something that was not human, something that attempted to take my life. I believe that was the cat form of Irena. Why should she wish to harm you? Because I'm in love with her husband. That, that movie, I, I have the Criterion release. It's, it's an amazing, amazing, not only horror film, but just film in general. I mean, you know, sometimes horror films get lumped. You know, oh, that's just horror and kind of pushed to the side and kind of disregarded. That movie you can't disregard. It, mm-hmm. it is. It works on all kinds of levels. Gorgeous film. Absolutely. Gorgeous film. Sometimes I worry when things get remastered and put out by like Criterion or somebody and they go to Blu-ray that you're going to lose some of the charm that, you know, especially today that we grow up with because we're watching older VHS transfers or DVD transfers that aren't necessarily the best. And you might lose a little bit of that. I don't feel like that happened with kind of people at all. It just enhanced it and made it look even more lush. That's a tribute to Val Luton and, and oh, the yeah. cinematography at that movie that, that it trans that again, it can, you can do whatever you want to it and it will always look amazing. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Card number three. What's your favorite Roger Corman film? Oh man. My favorite Roger Corman. It's got to be one of the Poe movies. I just watched Tomb of not too long ago. Um, so I'm going to go with that one because it's freshest in my memory. But Fall of House of Usher is also really good. Okay. Gosh, there's a ton in that Poe series. Speaking of the movies we're about to talk about, there's a ton of the, in that Poe series that uh, we'll go with Ligia for now because that's the one I just recently saw. And I love it. Edgar Allan Poe's Tomb of Ligia. Poe considered it his masterpiece. She will not die because she willed not to die. Vincent Price, magnificent, macabre, defying the deathless, jealous spirit of Lygia. A nightmare of terror. Pitting their lust for life against the unholy powers of the undead. Undead, Attack the Living, a wondrous world of maddening horror, starring Vincent Price in Edgar Allan Poe's 
tomb of Lygia in color. With Corman, for the most part, especially in the, the as I said, the uh, the Poe films, the one I saw last is the one I like the most. <laughs> you know what I mean? So. Oh, yeah. I'm like that with Val Luton, So Yep. Nope, love him. Love him. Yep. yep. All right. Card number four. Oh, I don't know if I've asked anybody this on the show lately. Una O'Connor. Do you prefer her as Jenny Hall in The Invisible Man or as Minnie from Bride of Frankenstein? <laughs> You know, she is a uh, an acquired taste for sure. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, I, I I think everybody would probably say Bride of Frankenstein, and I probably would lean that way. Although I have really come to love The Invisible Man as a movie in general, and I think her performance in that I don't think it took away. I think she's you know she's her normal uh, over the top self. Uh, we'll go with the Invisible Man. Like I said, I, I think the movie needs more love anyway. And uh, like I said, with Una, you know, you get what you get. <laughs> you can almost drop her in any movie and she's the same person as far as those kind of roles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do love the Invisible Man. Love it. You said it doesn't get as much love as the others? You, you think it needs more know. attention? I don't know. I think some people just kind of, you know, you, you, they think the monster movies. They think Frankenstein. They think the mummy. Of course, they think Wolfman. And then and, and, and that. Don't get me wrong. It's it's in there with the other ones. But, boy, if you watch that movie, he's vicious. I mean, that you know, Frankenstein monster's monster sympathetic. The creature, you know, just wants to get Julie Adams. The mummy, same kind of these, all these love stories, Dracula's. The Invisible Man is the true, he's the worst monster of the bunch. He's got the highest body count, for sure, of any of the monsters in the universe. It's just maniacal, and I and I love that movie. It's one of my favorites. It's easily one of my favorite universals. Right on. I know I've talked about that one and The Invisible Man Returns here on the show, but I don't think I've talked about any of the other, well, Abbott and Costello. I don't think I've talked about any of the other uh, serious Invisible Man sequels or follow-ups lately. So They, they start slipping pretty quick after, <laughs> after Returns. They do, but I really love The Invisible Age. Agent. I really yes, do like that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. A lot of fun. All right. Final card. Final question. What's your favorite William Castle film? 13 Ghosts. Easily. Listen to William Castle, whom the Saturday Evening Post calls the master of movie horror. Do you believe in ghosts? I do. And you will too. When you come to this theater and see my picture, 13 Ghosts, uh, no more dictation today. When you see 13 ghosts, you'll be given a supernatural viewer like this, which will enable you to penetrate for the first time into the spirit world. It will let you see all 13 of our weird, wonderful, and wildly assorted ghosts. Now, brace yourself as we take you across the threshold of our haunted mansion, where there's a ghost for everyone in the family. Father, mother, sister, brother, You'll be scared stiff too when you see what they see. Thirteen ghosts materializing in ectoplasmic color through the magic of Illusiono, the ghost viewer. That movie, when I was a kid, I saw that movie, gosh, I had to have been, couldn't have been no more than seven or eight. And that movie scared me so bad. I, I, I literally, I threw up watching. I can remember this to this day. That movie scared me that bad. And I love it to this day. I, I just think it's great. What a lot of fun. I love the gimmick with the ghost viewers. I used to own the DVD 
back one of the early pressings of the DVD, they actually sent you the ghost viewers and you could see, you know, you could put it on so you could see the ghost or you don't have to see the ghost. They've since quit doing that. And I've been hunting that DVD down because I got rid of it stupidly and I've been hunting it down forever. That is easily my favorite way of castle film is 13 ghosts. It made you throw up. It did. I was so scared. And it could have been a combination of a lot of things. Who knows? In my childhood, you know, I could have been the Frankenberry that I was eating or who knows what it was. But yeah, it scared me so bad at eight years old or seven years old. And I never forgot it. And I love that movie ever since. <laughs> wow. I know. Castle worked. He worked for me anyway at that time. <laughs> that's that's. I, I think he'd probably be pretty pleased to hear that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Like I said, because of that reason. Man, that movie is, I have loved it ever since because I was like, boy, that's a challenge. I got to get over my fear of that movie. And I did. And I love it. Wow. So <laughs> so you are currently on the hunt for a ghost viewer. So any listeners have any leads on these? Yes, I need my ghost viewers. <laughs> <laughs> well, right on, man. Well, that was the Classic Five. How do you feel, man? Awesome. I feel great. Right I on. love this game. Right on. All right. So we're pretty warmed up. You want to dive into the movie this week? Yep. So we're talking about uh, the third in the, uh, and I always have to say this now, I feel like, so-called Bloodthirsty Trilogy. It's not really a trilogy, more of a triptych, I think, is how Orrin put it when we had him on the show to talk about the first one. This is Evil of Dracula. It's the third time Toho went to the vampire well, like the other two films. It's not really Dracula. Uh, it is a vampire movie. It is Japanese. It's Toho. But it feels so much more like, and I think this is probably something you alluded to a second ago, one of the Poe Corman films. Exactly. And, and I'll tell you what, this is easily the one that you could replace the characters with Cushing, with Lee, you know, some of the girls from Hammer and not miss a trick in this story. This is the most Hammer of all three of these movies, um, as far as I'm concerned, the most most gothic. It's like how they did, you know, the Spanish language Dracula. You know, they filmed it at night on the same sets when they were filming regular Dracula oh, in 31. Yeah. yeah. I think you could do this exact same thing with this movie, have the Hammer cast come in and do that at night and film the same movie shot for shot. And you'd have the exact same film. you'd have, it, And it would have been better known. I, I, you know, that that's the thing. This movie is amazing. And, and I don't know that a lot of people know of it. I think that's the problem with all three of them, though, right? Is that yes. they don't get a lot of attention from classic monster kid, you know, people who love these movies, or even the modern vampire fan. And, and I think part of it is when they were released. You know, they're yep. in the 70s, so they're kind of in this weird, kind of nebulous area. And they're Toho, which, you know, you're not really associating vampire movies with Toho. No. But all three of the films have been kind of a revelation for me and this one i feel is the most hammer of the three it seems to have the least uh direct connections to japanese culture and society right uh that, that you give the other two it's not as overt that said it, it certainly feels not like they're just aping hammer you know i mean no, it, exactly. it, it could just be another dracula story another vampire story and I, yeah i really dig it man <laughs> yeah and, and, and you know you mentioned that these weren't, aren't really, even though they're called the Bloodthirsty Trilogy, they don't depend on one another. Although, as I was looking some research in the film and looking some things up, these films were all three recut and restructured by Toho to resemble one another. Uh, they were they did that deliberately so that they would have a, I don't, not, again, not that one, were, you know, they're direct sequels to one another, but I think that there's a, like a DNA thread that runs through all three of these films to keep them together. I thought that was fairly interesting. Yeah, stylistically, you can certainly see some connections. Uh, I wasn't aware that they intentionally went in and you know, recut them to make them feel a little bit more connected. Uh, they're all by the same director, I believe, right? Yep. 
Yes, who didn't do a whole lot. He he did work for Kurosawa. I think you've talked about this when you were talking to the other two guests. Uh, he worked for Kurosawa, which was great, but really his filmography is really, really small when you compare to some of the other guys in Hollywood and some of the other guys in, in Japanese cinema, especially for Toho. Um, the Kim Newman special on the the trilogy, he kind of talked a little bit about that, that he, he really he started in 56 and then pretty much after this did some TV work and was gone after these features. I think it's a shame. He's really good. Yeah. I, uh, let's see, see if I can pronounce the name correctly this time. Machio Yamamoto. There you go. This is going to be, this is going to be a rough on both of us. I can tell you right now. This <laughs> one. <laughs> His last movie, by the way, was in 98. And I really want to find a copy of it. The driverless hearse. That just sounds amazing. Oh, I, I'm not familiar <laughs> with this at all. Let's see. I've never heard of it either until I found out that today. I was looking up some stuff and I'm like, holy cow, I want to I want to see that movie. <laughs> the driverless hearse. Yep. Hmm. That ninety eight was that when he when he finished that. That was his last directorial credit that I could see. Driverless hearse. Listeners, if you know anything about this film, uh, the title alone has my interest. Mm-hmm. Got, exactly. Got to see it. <laughs> and I'll and I'll tell you for for and I think. Kim Newman kind of mentioned that in his thing that these were almost not throwaway movies for Toho, but you know, there really wasn't anything built upon them. They're amazingly beautiful. They are gorgeously shot. The direction is top notch. You know, the opening scenes of this movie, the real long shots down the train tracks as the train's coming in. Beautiful, beautiful cinematography in these movies. Uh, they have a sense of color and, and, and the way the camera moves around a little bit. Uh, you don't get nearly as many of the, uh, the rich shadow work that you get in the previous two films and this one, I don't think you need it though. I think there is a visual language that kind of evolves as you go through all three films, evil of Dracula coming out in 1974. uh, It really feels like you said, very hammer. Like I picked up on some, maybe some Lovecraftian tones as well, Mm -hmm. where you've got this academic character being thrown into, or not really thrown into, but kind of stumbling into uh, a supernatural or, other humanly kind of threat or situation. Yeah. Really fascinating stuff. Uh, the professor too, I felt was very strong or the lead character was very strong in the film. And I'm sorry, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the names this time around. How about Toshio Kurosawa? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm going to blame it on you. This, yeah, there we go. Exactly. You know, it's funny though. I will say this as you looked up. So I looked up his course. I wanted to see his stuff and I wanted to see, you know, all of the male actors have mm-hmm. huge credits. Toshio Kurosawa was in, I don't know, 80 some films. The the guy who plays the principal of Dracula, Shin Kishida. Again, he was an Ultraman and In of Evil and Return of Godzilla vs. Megalon, a bunch of different stuff. The Renfield, Professor Yuri or Yoshi guy, mm-hmm. uh, Katsuki Sasaki. Now, he's more of a straight up Toho, Godzilla vs. Megalon, Terramecha Godzilla, that kind of stuff. The women, however, this was pretty much their entire roles. They may have done this and maybe one or two other things, but all of the women in this had very, very uh, small careers, two or three films, and they're gone. Um, it's all the guys that seem to, other than the director, all the guys that seem to uh, to be real mainstays in Toho throughout not only the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and into the 80s. And I wonder if some of that has to do with just how men versus women were treated in the industry, that sort of thing. And it still continues. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's far from equal these days anywhere. Could be. And I thought the women leads were great uh, for the most part. Yeah. Uh, I thought 
uh, uh, Kumi, who played by Mariko <laughs> Machizuki. And again, anybody from Japan listening, I apologize. I'm probably tearing your culture apart. And the girl of Lady Dracula, I call her Lady Dracula, Mika Katsuragi. Again, I thought they were all great. They were really, really good. And as much as, you know, we're talking about the professor and the woman, the Dracula guy, the vampire, the lead vampire. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't know why he doesn't get more attention when you start thinking about vampires in cinema. Oh, he's great. He looks so cool. And it's the 70s, so he's got the sideburns. And he's got the 70s haircut. But there is just something about the way he looks at people in this film. He's malevolent. He is a malevolent. Lee gets the, you know, you you think Christopher Lee, you think vicious for Dracula. You know, uh, Bella is is the sophisticated foreign uh, aristocrat. This guy is flat out malevolent. Uh, you can just see it in his eyes. <laughs> I really dug him. You're right. Yeah, I'm not going to try to pronounce the name again. And I apologize, listeners. I, I I know sometimes it borders on disrespectful how bad I mess up these names. Uh, so <laughs> I'm just going to hold off. Shin Kashida. How about that? Okay. Works for me. <laughs> Works for me. Uh, he's great. Uh, yes. I, I don't know much about the background of a lot of these actors and actresses. And that's my failing because... Wow. He was supposedly the, uh, and I have to watch the film again, darn it, um, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. He was the Interpol agent uh, in that movie. Was agent he? Agent Numbara. Yep. He was Interpol agent Numbara in uh, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. Huh. Yeah. Like you said, darn, you got to go back and rewatch it. Exactly. He was in a couple, I know you're uh, Ultraman. He was in a couple of the Ultramans. I don't know of Return of Ultraman or Ultraman Ace, but uh, apparently he was in those as well. And I'm not sure what role uh, he was in on those. Okay. Yeah, I'm he a little was weaker cool. on those. Um, on those Ultraman series, I've watched a lot of them, but I'm a little weaker in terms of who's yep, in what yep. and what happens in them all. Unfortunately, he did not live very long. He passed away in the 80s, mm-hmm. uh, which is a. I don't know what the situation was. I don't know what the story was. I mean, he left us some great films, apparently, and some great TV work. But yeah. he's going to be right up there with one of my favorite Dracula characters. Now, he's not called Dracula in the movie. Nobody's called Dracula in any of these things. Although I think it's alluded to. It that is that's alluded who he to. And, and I like that, too. Uh, not just in this one, but one of the previous ones as well. There's this, I think in all three, actually, there's this illusion that somebody from Europe came over. A white man did something at one point. It's just kind of touched on a little bit and i don't know if that's Mm -hmm. a justification to call the movie dracula or if it's just like and i've mentioned this too in germany when they started bringing over a lot of the toho movies they put the word frankenstein in the title even though only one or two had frankenstein in them Uh, right well technically only one i guess which i love conquers the world right (laughs) i mean i love i love stumbling across images i don't own the posters somebody doesn't have a haunted cinema to hang them in here but you know (laughs) i don't own any posters but i love looking at these toho movie posters from germany and there's always frankenstein this and godzilla versus frankenstein that and so i wonder if dracula kind of started to take on that same kind of meaning with these films over here in japan and that's what i thought i thought the 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 mythology especially behind this one was pretty cool where, like you said, there was a, a shipwreck and, and a European who they don't say he's Dracula, but I think that's the implication is the only survivor. And, and he's so upset that he, he renounces his faith basically or spits on the cross because there's a lot of persecution in the 1600s. Uh, uh, Christianity was outlawed in, in Japan and there's a lot of persecution. So he's basically left as kind of like a wanderer in the, in the wastelands and the deserts. He is so thirsty, he starts to drink his own blood to quench his thirst, and he gets a taste for it, apparently, and then kills a young girl, again, and as, as this legend goes, and I'm not spoiling too much in the, for the movie, kills this young girl, carries her body, 
and then she comes back. And I think the implication is that this guy, and we'll talk about how it happens, and this young girl are the principal and the principal's wife now. Um, I think that's the implication. And again, how they get to there is pretty cool, I think, in this thing. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But, but I thought that whole legend was pretty awesome. They do lay a lot of backstory here. And for this third film in this trip to this series of films, I like that all three of them actually have a different background, a backstory. Mm -hmm. They're not all connected. Yeah, you know, the continuity comic book nerd in me would love to see them all get connected somehow, you know. (laughs) But they don't have to be. They can be standalone stories sometimes. And and these three films do have their own individual take or approach to what a quote-unquote vampire is. Like in the first one, it's, it's very far removed <laughs> correct right, from right. vampire yeah, yeah you know uh, and the second Although cool scary looking oh yeah and then the second one you know they have the coffin and all that stuff but this one mm-hmm. seems to be the most vampire the most dracula of the bunch and what's neat about it is it's the same writer for all three films and he told very unique tales like you said it was where they weren't all just all ripoffs of one another very unique tales that's ia ogawa again <laughs> I hope. Anyway, um, the, the, these stories are tight stories that sometimes these movies can wander around and you're not really sure what's going on. And you got these side characters. He wrote very tight stories. By the way, his big claim to fame, I don't know if, you, if you've ever seen Yogg, Monster from Space. Oh, yeah. That was his, that was his movie. He was, he was the writer of Yogg, or Space Amoeba, if you're from Japan. But Yogg, the Monster from Space is uh, Iwo Gawa's big film. So, no, I thought his, his storytelling is great in this movie. I was really uh, drawn to it and a big fan of just how these were all constructed as individual pieces with the same kind of DNA in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. But I'm really a big fan of those. And I am very, I don't know if ignorance is too strong a word, but I, I when it comes to Japanese genre cinema or just Japanese cinema in general, I don't know nearly as much as I wish I did. And, right. and I think part of it is I don't speak the language in a lot of the movies that I'm kind of interested in haven't been translated or haven't been dubbed or subtitled uh so you know it's hard for me to expose myself to this um but i was yeah. i was kind of surprised that there was no dubbing on this arrow and and, and, and in a way pleased um i like to listen to see the movies in their original tongue you know sometimes the dubbing sometimes it's good in movies Oftentimes it's it's not very good, and, and and the Japanese movies suffer the most, I think, for that. The problem with this is, you know, reading the subtitles is not a big deal, but these these scenes were so lush and so gorgeous. It's like I don't want to read; I want to look at the scene. Wait, you know, you almost watch this movie three times just to pick it all up. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I prefer them dubbed as well, uh, especially with some of the Toho movies, because when they get over here to the U.S. and they start dubbing them, sometimes they do sound like they're just screaming. You know. <laughs> Exactly. Over, exactly. Yeah, and it's just, I think more care has been taken today than maybe in the 60s and 70s, but yep. still. Uh, and I wonder if part of the reason why these aren't dubbed, why we don't have a dubbed version of these, if they didn't get a lot of play over here, which would explain why a lot of people didn't really know much about them until they came out on blue. Yeah, I, I think that's right. There probably is not a dub track for these would be my guess or arrow. I'm sure would have included it. Um, there might not have been one. This might have been Japanese market only. Uh, it would be, wouldn't be a surprise. Especially as late as this one, 74, you know, that's, that's you know, getting into the shift in cinema with, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, and Halloween and all the, the, the movies that come after. You know, the, the vampires, you know, Count Yorga and, and uh, uh, movies like that, 
are starting to fade away now. You know, at this period in time, we're starting to get more of the uh, satanic panic films like Race with the Devil, which is a great movie, by the way. Uh, some of those films are coming in. And then, of course, like I said, with uh, Toby Hooper and Chainsaw and uh, later films, you know, obviously we have a complete shift in horror and what, what the audiences are wanting. Oh, yeah, yeah. Things started changing like in the late 60s or in the 60s with Psycho. And then I, mm-hmm. I think it was, uh, was it David J. Scow, who used to write a column for Fangoria years ago, and uh, I'm badly paraphrasing here, but he makes the point that once you see, uh, you know, the kid next door stab somebody in a shower, it's really kind of hard to go back to, <laughs> you know, gossip right. castles That's and right. things like that. So, yeah, uh, things do start to shift, and Texas Chainsaw really kind of took it to the next step. And you mentioned the Satanic Panic. I love those films, too, for everything that they mm-hmm. are. They're just... I don't want to say fun. <laughs> no, they're but, great. They're but, but they good are stuff. great. And even Hammer got in on that with you know Satanic Rites of Dracula, which yeah. I will defend to the end of time because I love. I that love film. that movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and Rodney Barrett had it. He was he was talking about uh, that in eighty seventy two and how he's really come upon them. At first, they were kind of cast offs, and now that he's re looked at them with the new Blu rays, and I agree. Those movies are fun. They just are. I mean, are they the best? No, but I could watch them anytime. Slap one on. I mean, right. and somebody <laughs> decided to put them out on blue. That's yes. wonderful. You know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great time to be alive. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, it's a good time to enjoy them. It's a terrible time to have to afford them all. Oh, that's true. That is really true. Uh, you, you talked about Psycho. I've never seen Psycho. I'm going to watch it tonight. I have it, and I keep sitting and getting around to getting it. I'm going to watch it tonight for the very first time. Oh. I know the shower scene, and I know, obviously, the spoiler at the end, but I know nothing else about that movie other than Bates Motel. <laughs> oh, my Todd. Oh, I know. Man. I, it's like I should turn to my Monster Kid card, but no, I've, I've seen all these other goofy movies, and I'm like, huh, never got around to Psycho. <laughs> wow. So that's going to be it's ending tonight, by the way. So I'll admit my embarrassment. And no, we'll... there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I, how many times have we come across a classic movie here on Monster Kid Radio, and I have to admit, you know, I've never seen this one all the way through yeah. or from start to finish. Uh, just <laughs> the episode I'm putting out this week as of this recording, Metropolis. I never sat oh, down really? to watch it from start to finish until I sat down Actually. to watch it for the episode, and it changed my life, man. <laughs> I love that movie. That movie's amazing. I, I truly do. I saw you post about that, that you need to watch more silent films, and I have a bunch of silent films, too, and I've watched a handful of them. Um, they're so good. They're just so good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got some... Uh, Set aside, I'm going to try to dive into one later today, but we are getting way off track. <laughs> yes, we are. We are. We are. We have moved far and far away. Isn't that what um, happens, though? You know, a couple of yeah, monsters exactly. start chatting. It's like, hey, what about that monster movie? Uh, one, one more point about Psycho. I'd be real curious to hear what you think about it. Maybe give us a call. I'll, I'll let everybody some, know yeah, tonight. I'll yeah. post it on Facebook because I'm, I'm pretty excited to watch it. Um, right on. Swing it back to this film. Yeah, I'll let's get back it. to Evil Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about um, the, the professor and we talked about Dracula. What about the Renfield character, the uh, Professor Yoshi? I thought he was cool. He was creepy and cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At first, and I think this probably speaks to the strength of, well, just the Renfield character, whether you see Mm -hmm. him in the Lugosi Dracula or or whatever. You have such a sense of sympathy for him and everything he's been through. Mm -hmm. So you understand where he's coming from. But when he does turn on the crazy, you don't want to be in the same room with him. That's right. You, you feel bad for him, but it's like, come on. And, and that's just the character, the Renfield character. And the Renfield character in this, no, they don't call him Renfield. He does no. the exact same thing. You feel bad for him. You know, he's kind of zoned out. He's not really with it. He's not here. He suffered some great trauma, but. <laughs> he's a bad man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And the, and the way they lied him to when that shift happens. Yep. 
Yep. Really, and really I suppose good. we should give the setup for the film. We've, we've been talking about professors and principals. The movie uh, takes place in a – and I think it's a girl's college because the, the, the professor, the hero professor, I think he's going to teach uh, psychology. And this Professor Yoshi, I think, teaches French literature. So it's an all-girls college. The principal is the Dracula character, but you don't know that at the time. He, this new professor is invited up to teach, and and over drinks at the very when he's their first meeting, uh, the principal says, "Oh, and by the way, you've been selected to become the next principal, the next headmaster." And he's kind of blown away by that. Story centers around you know that the principal's wife was killed as they're driving up to the the um, manor. The, the the Renfield guy is bringing him the professor up. They pass a car crash, and he said the principal's wife had been killed just earlier, a couple days before. He goes there and finds, of course, she's <laughs> she's in a coffin in the basement for everybody to see because I think he said something. They're supposed to leave him there for seven days, or I forget the whole reason why she was in the wine cellar. <laughs> 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 Reminded me of horror Dracula a little bit because he was in the wine cellar too. Um, but uh, exactly uh, right. Yeah, I had that same <laughs> thought. I had that same thought. It's like, man, what is it with wine cellars? But hey, uh, so the professor comes in, surprised to find out he's going to be this guy, and then. I guess there's a school break, there's a holiday, and all the girls are going home except for three roommates. That would be Kumi, uh, and I can't think the other two girls, um, are going to stay. That's when bad things start to happen. The one girl is uh, uh, Lady Dracula. We'll, We'll call her Lady Dracula. And so super creepy. The, the the pictures of these these women. I like the Brides of Dracula as a thing anyway. So anytime there's Brides of Dracula stuff, I'm kind of perking up because I think that's a cool cool look. They always do that well. These girls were really creepy when they became vampires. So mm-hmm. um, ultimately, and the professor is starting to figure out what's going on with the help of the doctor. I thought that was a pretty good t- a pretty good team up for them to try to figure out what's happening at this school and what's happening to these girls. Pretty neat stuff. Yeah. Uh, the women, when they, they turn, um, mm-hmm. yeah, they do throw the lights up, you know, underneath their face. They get that kind of underlit kind of look, and their makeup's gone pale. But it's a scary image. There's a reason why we have that stereotype, you know, that kind of let's hold the flashlight under our face and go, ooh, you know, it, it mm-hmm. works. And, and they're, they've got the fangs, and they're the, you know, this is what everybody, like I said, we talked about uh, the first movie in the trilogy. It's vampire with air quotes around it. <laughs> this is straight on vampires. There's absolutely no doubt about it that what these these monsters are vampires. <laughs> and it's I thought it was cool. Yeah. Um, I love the look of Dracula with his cape and his white scarf. And uh, it was pretty neat. It wasn't just a ripoff of Christopher Lee. They actually they did some cool stuff with him. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the, the way he looks, the way he, he reacts and speaks as well, uh, especially when he catches uh, the professor, the soon-to-be principal, in the basement with the coffin. At that point, he could have gone either way. It could have gone, <laughs> okay, the gig is up. You know what's going on. Got to kill you now. But he doesn't. Again, he he has this kind of play acting like, oh, you shouldn't be in here. Oh, no, you figured it out. I just really like that kind of approach, that kind of the feel there. I love that wine cellar set. Uh, And it does feel a lot like horror. I thought that, too. I'm glad I'm not the only one because I thought that, too, for sure. I had mentioned earlier we were talking about how the the shipwreck guy and the girl he killed might allude to be the principal and the, uh, uh, the principal's wife. They talk about... 
this guy who is about to be the principal, the new guy, the new he's not the first person that was approached to become the the next principal. They said the guy who was right before him went insane when he was told. Right. <laughs> so so he's got you know he's like oh I'm instantly intrigued. You know you you get you're going to get a job promotion. You go insane. There's got to be something to this. Um, and that was pretty neat finding that guy. The part of the lore that I thought was really cool where they changed the lore, and I hope this isn't too much of a spoiler. They can take the face of somebody. Wear it like a, and they had a good scene of them cutting the face off the one girl, <laughs> and she, and she wears it like a mask, and then, boom, she becomes that person. I thought that was pretty doggone cool. That was really cool and kind of unexpected. I know it's been kind it of implied was. that they can do this kind of thing, right. but I didn't realize That's- it was okay. We're gonna, and again, we're in spoiler territory here. You, yes. Everybody heard the warning. <laughs> She cuts the face off of somebody and puts it. I mean, come on. That came straight out of the blue. They got the girl laying on the slab, you know, and the, the, she's there. I'm like, oh, what's going to happen? You're, oh, she's going to drink her blood or she's going to do whatever. And it's like, what has she got a knife for? Oh, some satanic sacrifice. Nope. She's cutting her face off. <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I was like, well, that's just something. And then they showed the poor guy who went insane. He's got the scar under his neck, you know. So the implication is when they say, Derek, you're the next principal. It's not you. It's your face that becomes the next principal. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little disturbing. I thought that was a really cool take. And that's how, you know, and, and how does Dracula live throughout the ages without anybody noticing that it's the same guy over and over again? Because he can change who he is over and over again. Yeah. I thought that was cool. He just needs a new face. Speaking of Texas Chainsaw, he just needs to take somebody's <laughs> face off and put it on his own. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That I, was perfect. <laughs> it really did. I'm, I'm laughing because it did come out of the blue. It is... I don't want to say absurd, but it's totally unlike anything that I expected in any of these three films. You do have some, you know, the spurting blood that you get in some of the Japanese Mm -hmm. horror films and all that in the previous films. But when she starts taking the knife to the woman's face and then you get the close up of her hand with the blood spray coming over it. It's like, this is, um, what is happening here? (laughs) Yeah, I'm sitting, I'm sitting watching the movie. I'm in. I'm late. I'm sucked in. I'm like, this is a cool tale, and I got, I'm bought into the characters. La 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 la. That was like a freight train. I was like, wow, there you go. I didn't see that one coming at all. <laughs> didn't see it coming. <laughs> and um, okay, now what happens? <laughs> yeah, and now I'm glad I did see it. Cause I was like, no, I'm glad because <laughs> it was awesome. Right. Yeah, that was. When we say there's a lot of blood and there's what this is not like modern day filmmaking no. level of blood. This is this is a. Better blood than hammer, I have to say. It's not quite the hammer blood, but uh, but it was definitely uh, definitely a shock to see that happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, just great. That was just such fun. That, these movies are really beautifully shot. Great tight tales, man. I, I can't believe I've never I'd never heard of these films before. And I, I wonder, and I'd have to go back and rewatch. Darn. Uh, <laughs> I feel like this one, the third one, does seem to take place more in the day than the other two. There yeah. seems to be a lot more sunlight in these and, and not with the vampires running around during the day or whatever, but just the lead in the introduction of the characters on the road, you find that car wreck that the wrecked car is still there yes. <laughs> for some reason. They <laughs> never that pulled odd. that away, but you yes, know, it gives you a good visual odd. though. Something kind of cool to look at, but that is true. And you make a good point. They do talk about that. The principles never seen during the day, um, which is good. So they keep that part of the vampire myth, but these movies are not shot darkly and you, you always run that risk on you know vampire films that they can get dark and you kind of miss things um this is not the case here you know either it's daylight and they're outside or when they're interior shots um they're all very well lit 
uh, even where when the the doctor guy um, is kind of on the trail of Dracula because they they've all figured it out now and they're all on the on the hunt for him mm-hmm. um, and he gets into with, with his the big fight and he's got his camera and he's taking pictures even that was very well lit and that was out in the woods very good lighting like I said you you really don't miss anything because of poor lighting I think it was really good like the mood that you get with the deep shadows we were talking about Val Luton at the very beginning of this I like that but sometimes lesser filmmakers use that as a technique to kind of hide an inadequacy with like, say the special effects makeup and that sort of thing. There's no hiding in this. You see everything you need to see. And that's the amazing thing about this, this director, you know, who I I think this was a super competent film and all three are are actually shot well, uh, directed well, paced well, and and to not see him really do more. It's kind of a surprise. Cause like I said, I think, I think, you know that there's a there's a lot of directors making a lot of movies today that could learn a lesson from how tight these films were, um, and and how cohesive and how the how the stories worked and how the directing was. I think there's a lot of directors today could learn some things. Yeah, and they are pretty briskly paced. Uh, there, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of fat. You know, they, they kind of get in, do what they need to do, and then get out. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, we were talking about the Dracula films and Hammer and eighty seventy two and Satanic Rites. I love those movies, but. Let's be honest, they're not nearly as lush as Horror of Dracula. No, you you can tell that Hammer, either because they chose to or they couldn't, put as much money into those productions. And so as the series progresses, they kind of fall off a little bit in terms of the budget yeah because they're, they're money makers they you know right. they became they became instant drive-in cash cows right you know you, you slap christopher lee on it say he's dracula and you're going to get a certain amount of box sure. office no matter what you-, you see this with other franchises as well you know the first one does great let's make the second one make even more money but have the budget i don't feel like you see that as much with these three films no, yeah. See, see any mummy movie, by the way. You know, you start with <laughs> right? either Universal or Hammers. You start with a high, and then you start ticking down as you go. Although I got to be honest, the Universal Mummy movies are my favorite series in the Universal uh, canon. I love the Mummy movies. Really? Oh, I do. I love every one of them. <laughs> no, I, I love them too. As, so hey, you as know. absurd as some of them get with the Bayou and the whatever, I love every one of them. <laughs> uh, I love them too, man. You're, you're preaching to the choir, girl. I was just. Yeah, I love them too. But the hammer ones get a little silly. But I, oh, I for whatever reason, well, I, do I too. talked about I it do though. I, the mummy, put put somebody in bandages. I'm halfway there. I love me a mummy I mean, movie. So exactly, great. You know, and for films that I don't know if Toho ever expected, you know, that these were going to be you know giant successes. I, I guess to, again, watching that Kim Newman interview, which is pretty good. If anybody, I don't know if people like special features or not. That was really worth the time. He talked a little bit about. That these vampires weren't really the Japanese taste in movies, and that's kind of how they they drifted away. And then then there's other movies that took up the mantle, more the ghosty kind of vampires that Japanese people loved. But um, I think these films are fantastic. Sure. Every one of them. Oh, I agree with you. And there was a, a gap. Uh, they did Vampire Dolls. It came out in seventy seventy one. Was Lake of Dracula. Mm-hmm. This one didn't come mm-hmm. out until seventy four. And I, I don't know if they shot them all close to each other and just kind of held on to or, or worked on post production for a while or what the situation was there. Why there was such a longer period of time between Lake of Dracula and Evil of Dracula. Now the princess wife was also in Lake of Dracula. Right. She was also in Lake. Well, and that was pretty typical of Toho, right? They would have mm-hmm. people on contract, very similar to the studio system here. They had a lot of the people they're just kind of around and ready to work for Toho. And, right. hey, you're going to do a samurai movie today. Oh, okay. Well, next week we've got a, a, you know, a kaiju film for you. You know, yep. it's very similar to that kind of setup with a lot of these actors and actresses and directors, really. Now, I did see where they said this film 
was actually paying tribute. I guess in the 50s, there were more of these types of European, you know, and it probably has something to do with the war and the modernization of Japan and, and kind of moving them, you know, into the modern age with the rest of the world. And, and you know, you see this all over. They kind of get that Western taste. In the 50s, you know, the, I guess Shintoho, another studio, uh, there was a film – and again, another one I want to see, Nakagawa Nabua, The Lady Vampire. So they, they said this is a real direct tribute to those films or that film. And that's another film I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> but get the list out. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's kind of the downside to a lot of these movies, too. You know, we love them so much. And then we start looking mm-hmm. to see what they did next. And suddenly oh, you're yeah. in a rabbit hole, 20 movies deep. Like, I haven't seen that one. And oh, we did this one, too. And hey, what about that one? Yeah. Gosh, Severn just released that uh, uh, the Blood Island trilogy, so I'm deep into them now, and uh, you know the Beast of Blood and some of those films and from the Philippines, and it's like, oh my gosh, there's a whole other bunch of monster movies that I've never seen before. And now I want to see them all, so <laughs> it's crazy. It's good and bad to be a monster kid right now. <laughs> yeah, we we really are in a golden age. Like I think you alluded to that earlier. We, man, with Shout Factory and Arrow and all these other companies, Indicator over in the UK putting out great sets. It's pretty nuts. Yeah, you can get the Deadly Manus on Blu-ray. Who'd have thunk? <laughs> That's awesome, though, right? Yeah, it's awesome. It's a great thing. Yep. Although, like I said, it's it's my bank account goes really. You need the Deadly Manus on Blu-ray? Absolutely, I need the Deadly Manus on Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, I, I I can say that to myself. My bank account, you know, currently unemployed right now, is saying no. You don't right. need it just yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's been around since the fifties. He can wait a little longer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not overly worried about Shout Factory's DVDs or Blu-rays going out of print, but when mm-hmm. it never hits Criterion, that's when I start to worry. You get nervous. You get nervous. You know, I, I'll tell you what we we and I know we're off track again. Ah, it, it happens. But, uh, the other Criterion, my probably in the top five of my favorite classic horror films is on Criterion. That's Carnival of Souls, and that is a beautiful Criterion release. Yes, it is. I love that movie. That that movie, I love all kinds of ways <laughs> it's it's incredible yep, it really yep. is i hope listeners aren't frustrated or shaking their fists at us here because we keep going all over the map here but <laughs> again you know it's one of those things and i talk about this all the time monster kids start talking and then yeah but what about right. that movie what about that movie well she That's was in this right. one and then yeah you're right i will say and if 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 people haven't seen these or haven't searched out these this arrow set do yourself a favor get you will not be disappointed if you like uh, vampires and creepy stuff. You will not be disappointed for atmosphere and mood. Mm-hmm. These things are absolutely amazing. And it has really sparked in me. Well, now I've got to find a whole nother group of films because it looks like there's a bunch of Japanese films from this period that sound great. You know, we talked about the driverless hearse and some of these others that I, I got my Frankenstein. I love those guys. And I got my John Agar and I love that stuff. But look at all this other stuff I haven't even heard of before. Right. And if it's anything like these three films, Man. And it sounds like you were in the same situation. When this first came out on, on Blue, I bought it sight unseen. Yeah. I'd never seen the movies before getting them on disc and having them at home. And it was a successful gamble. These three films have been a blast to go through. Got to mention it because I'm the film score guy. I love the music in these things. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, I do too. I, I think this was the weaker of the three, and that's not saying a whole lot. That's not saying like, man, this is terrible. But I think the other two had better, better soundtracks. To I, I think the previous two had more unique mm-hmm. uh, of a soundtrack. This one seems a little bit more traditional monster movie stuff. 
I agree with that. It's all the same guy. Yeah. Uh, Manabe. Uh, I'm not going to, I'm sorry. I have to sit down with Dominique and just she and I need to, to list out a name of common Japanese uh, actors, actresses, whatever. Just write, write yes. that out the list and have her tell me how to pronounce them. Uh, <laughs> although it is my goal this year at some point, I want to learn some Japanese. So maybe that'll help. <laughs> maybe the folks at the Kaiju cast can jump in and help out too. Yeah, those go. guys, they, they got to suffer with this every week. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Kyle can handle it. Kyle can handle it. Um, but speaking of which, and I mentioned this before the composer on this, he worked on Godzilla versus Megalon. So, you know, again, it's that Toho family of people in front of and behind the camera. So the guy who did this is responsible for the, uh, Jaguar March. Yeah. And you know what, and I'll tell you what, that, you know, you say it, you know, Toho, you, you really, you gotta, in a way, thank Toho for taking the chance on these films because, mm-hmm. you know, this is the seventies. This is the height of Godzilla and his pals. These are, you know, they're cranking out movies that are successes every time they drop one to step back and go in a completely, you know, 180 degree direction with, with a more classic uh, monster tale three times going back to the well, three times, you know, I, I that just shows the flexibility and kind of the, the daring of hammer or i mean i'm sorry of toho hammer <laughs> there you go uh toho uh <laughs> really the studios to to do this and to take this on i think that was pretty cool it says a lot about toho yeah if you look at toho's output especially once you start getting into the 70s mm-hmm. they've got their tried and true you know godzilla versus mm-hmm. smog monster yeah. you know godzilla versus gigan which is great mm-hmm. um you know in a few other kaiju movies but they also got lady snowblood coming out in 73 Mm-hmm. You know, so you, you've got some yeah. real chances yeah. being taken here. A number of different titles. I, I pulled, just pulled up the Toho filmography and looking at the 70s. Yeah, you see a lot of the, uh, you know, the old favorites. But this is also the, yeah. the decade in which they released House. Oh, well, that's true. You know, which is really all over the place. And again, you, you know, you think of equivalent studios at the time. So, you know, obviously Toho's aping a Hammer look. and it, But Hammer was, was they had their formula, right? They were doing their thing and that's the, the films that they were making. Obviously, Hollywood was out of the giant monsters and they were down into the more the, the satanic panic stuff we talked about earlier and, and some of the smaller films. Nobody was as flexible and going in as many different directions as Toho was, you know, the giant monsters to a, to a vampire tale, to the house, to, to all these different films, they were taking more chances than really, if you think about it, almost any studio in the world at the time. You know, that's a good point. Something I hadn't really considered, but I, I think you're right. I mean, I'm just looking at their overall filmography. I mean, in the sixties and seventies and a little bit into the eighties, it is really, it's all over the place and successful. You know, and that's the thing, you know, sometimes they'll take a chance like, oh, that was terrible. You know, our John Disney, our John Carter of Mars, you know, wrecked us. So we're going to stay away from that stuff from now on. You know, Toho's like, no, we're going to do this. And it's successful. We're going to do this. It's successful. You know, they stepped away from this, obviously, a little bit, the the vampire stuff. But I think it's still good on them for getting in in that ring and and showing, really flexing their creative muscles and say, we can do what everybody else is doing as well. We can do a vampire film. Nobody can do a Godzilla film like we do. So we'll, we'll show we can do what everybody else is doing at the same time yeah just looking here i mentioned a couple of them but godzilla versus monkey godzilla terror of mecha godzilla i mean they were Mm -hmm. really hammering home the kaiju stuff but they they did these other things too kind of off the beaten path and i'm so glad they did Uh, i I think these three films and this one in particular i think would probably be the easiest sell when it comes Mm -hmm. to trying to get somebody into japanese vampire movies or just getting into this this period of of these uh the series of films at all this one's the easiest uh to get into it's the least quote-unquote Japanese of the three. Right, 
Right, exactly. But it still has some elements that, you know, are kind of different to European audiences, yeah. like the, the face thing. That's so great. And and again, like I said, this one of, as we talked about there at the very beginning of this conversation, this one would be the easiest one to take a European cast and drop them into the roles and not have to change a thing about it. And, and, and it would flow, flow perfectly. It had all the beats of a Hammer film or it had all the beats. And we didn't talk about this too much, but it's got a lot of the same beats of a Corman Poe adaptation right. as well. We didn't talk too much about that. It's got a lot of that kind of look. The dead wife and the, the coffin in the basement. That's a straight pull out of Corman from the time, mm-hmm. you know, some, mm-hmm. some of his stuff. Fall House of Usher and those kind of films. All three of these definitely have parallels or, or uh, inspirations from the Corman Poe films, for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. And even the Poe story structure. Uh, we talked a little yeah. bit uh, with Oren on the first episode, or the first part of this set, where there's so much of, like, Case of M. Valdemar in that. And mm-hmm. I mean, you can see the different influences kind of coming in to these yeah. films from outside of Japan. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, they make it their own. Exactly. And, and it works perfectly. It's definitely seamless. I agree, man. I agree. I wish there was more. I wish there were more Japanese vampire movies from this era for me to explore and, and experience. I, I'm sure they did more vampire stuff. Time to go hunting. It, it really is, right? <laughs> it really is. There's got to be something out there. It's good. Man. It's, what, it's what it looks like. It's like, you need a VHS player now. No, no. I've got <laughs> enough formats. <laughs> I've got one. It's just in the closet in the bedroom right yeah. now. I, I haven't hooked it up in years. So <laughs> I'm actually buying a laser disc player here fairly quickly. Oh man. <laughs> I used to have one. I again here we go off track again, but I used to have one. As I posted on my Instagram feed at one point, sometimes you just get tired of the Star Wars special editions and you just need to see hand shoot first. And really the only way to do that is laser disc or VHS. And I kind of like laser disc because it's kind of cool. <laughs> that, that's one format that I skipped. I, I did yeah. not invest in a laser disc player when they were a thing. They're pretty cool. They're just cool. One of my best friends at the time did have one though. And, uh, <laughs> we, uh, awesome. we spent a lot of time watching. I was there when he bought the laser disc player and I was there when he bought his first two laser discs. It was, uh, uh, what was the U2 concert video? <laughs> oh, Joshua tree tour <laughs> yeah, or something. It was that. <laughs> and, uh, oh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Those were the two, oh, nice. the first two laser discs we watched. And, uh, well, Japan was the last real holdout for Laserdisc. They went fairly long. They went to the 2000s with Laserdisc. I'm hoping that some of these titles might exist in Laserdisc. Um, mm. These titles that we talk about that that you know I can hunt down that way. We'll see. Uh, that'll be kind of fun. That'll be a, definitely something to find because uh, huh. I think there's some. I think there's some gems. Let's put it this way: if they're as good as what we, these three films. I think there's some real hidden gems out there that American audiences haven't seen or European audiences haven't seen. <laughs> huh. so, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Again, my bank called me and said, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. Boy. <laughs> Which by the way, I went before I, and I know again, we're so far afield now. It doesn't probably matter anymore. Um, loved your book. I loved the Mark Temple stuff. Oh, I want thanks, more. man. Uh, get it out, get some more out. I was kind of sad when I finished the book. So well, I appreciate that. I Thank to, you. No, it was good stuff. So I appreciate people, that. People want to, listeners, if you haven't downloaded Derek's book, it's, it's I think two ninety nine. So it's, it's a steal for what you get. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Well, thanks man. I appreciate that. I think you were well, one of the ones that left a review, right? I did. Yeah, I you're did. one of my favorite people. <laughs> well, you're one of my favorite authors now. Hey, well, there we go. There we go. <laughs> All right. Uh, just to bring it back to Evil of Dracula one more time. And listeners, I'm sorry this episode wasn't nearly as focused as the previous two films, but I think at this point, this movie 
if we haven't made it clear, we had a grand time watching it. Is there anything else you want to mention about Evil of Dracula? No, I just, again, I know there are people that will look at this and they'll hear that it's in subtitles and that might put them off. They don't want to read while they're watching a movie. Don't let that be the thing that stops you for these, all three of these films. Like I said, Evil of Dracula is probably going to be the one that most classic monster fans will latch to and say, Oh, this is what I know. This is my, my neighborhood. But all three of these films they're beautiful. The characters are great. The stories are tight. The music is amazing. The cinematography is amazing. Don't let the fact that they're in subtitles put you off from picking up this set. Uh, Arrow did an amazing job with this. The restorations are phenomenal. This really could be an introduction to a lot of monster fans, I think, into a group of films that none of us know anything about. And, and let that be that. So, like I said, don't let the subtitles put you off get over it pretty quick as far as when you're watching it and you get caught into the story because these stories are really tight and really fun. Enough said. I think Dodd put it the best. Uh, don't be put off by these. Uh, I, I think most folks these days are, at least most listeners of the show, are there subtitles? It's okay. Um, you know, they're, they're okay with that. I know in the past it's been difficult, but I think film fans have kind of matured a little bit and they're down with the subtitles. I think uh, this one in particular is probably the easiest to watch with subtitles. Um, Correct. I, I mentioned this earlier, I think maybe with Oren on the first one, that no, it might have been with Ken. E- either way, I know that the previous two, sometimes I get so wrapped up in the visuals that I'm not paying attention to the subtitles at all. Sure. And you don't need them sometimes. Sometimes no. it's okay for that mm-hmm. to happen. I think with this one, it's probably the easiest to kind of follow along with the subtitles. Um, and that's because some of the shots are it's different, a little bit more traditional, probably more mm-hmm. what we're used to as Western audiences. And it's scary. These movies are scary. Yeah, it offers some good scares, man. Mm-hmm. Whenever those mm-hmm. vampire girls show up, the stuff with the face, uh, the yep. stuff, the climax at the end, uh, the way they yep. kind of dispatch one of the vampires, it's just really cool. That's right. It's That's really right. cool. Good on you, Toho, for taking a chance <laughs> and doing these, and good on you, Arrow, for That's putting right. these out for us, because the Blu-rays are gorgeous. They should be a proud spot in any Monster Kids collection. Well, this has been fun, man, to just kind of talk about these movies a little bit, and uh, to kind of wrap up with a nice, easy-breezy conversation with a good friend. Mm-hmm. Todd, this was great. We'll have you on the show again down the line. Thanks again, man. You know, I've been sitting on this recording for so long, Todd, that I don't remember if we ever followed up with each other about Psycho. I'm dying to know what you thought of the movie, man. I've been thinking about that film quite a bit lately. I'm not sure why. Well, okay, I do know why. It's because the film takes place in the month of December, which is, well, coming up here soon. In fact, if you go back into the archives, you might find a one-off episode that Chris McMillan and I recorded Several, uh, I think it was like two, three years ago about Psycho. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Listeners, check out Todd over at thehauntedcinema.com and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. May I have your attention, please? I have been asked to explore the serious side of Alfred Hitchcock. Very likely, I suspect, because I am Alfred Hitchcock. I have chosen to do this through the following serious statement. I want you to see Psycho, a motion picture, exactly the way I originally made it, uncut, with every scene intact, especially the famous shower bath scene, which the TV version did not dare show. This occurs 44 minutes from the start of Psycho. Watch for it, and remember, No one will be admitted to see Psycho except from the very beginning. 
I now leave you with this final serious message. Suggested for mature audiences. Vampires, werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. saw somebody murdered some sort of ritual across the river a girl got stabbed two men witness an unspeakable evil and get trapped in an unbelievable nightmare (laughs) 20th century fox presents race with the devil starring peter fonda and warren oates they're trying to screw with our brains so what are we going to do about it there was nowhere they could hide you've seen this There was no one they could trust. Did anybody hear anything? Didn't anybody see anything? There was nothing they could do but run and fight and race with the devil. When you race with the devil, you'd better be faster than hell. Peter Fonda and Warren Oates in Race with the Devil. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Thanks again to Kenny, Professor Frenzy, and, of course, Todd Brown for being part of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. There will be links to everybody's corresponding projects in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net, which is where you can find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes or even while you listen. I'm not the boss of you. You can do whatever you want while you're listening to the show. When you do go over to the website, you're going to see that you can find links to every single episode of Monster Kid Radio that we've dropped. This is episode 444. So you do the math and you'll come up with how many different episodes of Monster Kid Radio you can go back into the archives to check out. Of course, there are links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, and our Twitter as well over there and links to our YouTube channel as well. Please consider following us on YouTube and subscribing to the YouTube channel. Every episode of monster kid radio does go directly to YouTube as well. So if you're somebody who likes to use YouTube as your primary way of consuming audio media, well, I've got you covered. Plus every once in a while, I sneak in something special exclusively to the YouTube channel. Stay tuned for that. Now, sometimes I'll even use the YouTube channel to promote what's coming out on a monthly basis on Monster Kid Radio. Well, I'm not doing that this month because, well, I just ran out of time. Let's be honest. October is an incredibly busy time for us Monster Kids. And as the producer of Monster Kid Radio, man, I was swamped. You know, I hosted the Scarathon. That was five movies at the Joy Cinema. And then we did the 13-hour plus. It probably ran for about 14 and a half hours, actually. On Halloween Day, Kenny mentioned it in his famous Monsters of Filmland segment, the Monster Kid Radio Halloween Monster Movie Marathon watch-along on Twitch, which, in my opinion, went off 
without a hitch. It was a blast to have you guys and gals there. If you were along for the ride, if you are active in the chat room, or if you're just lurking, watching the movies, man, it was so awesome to have you guys and gals there. I can't think of a better way to spend Halloween than with my fellow monster kids. And if that means I got to do it virtually so I can get all of y'all from all across the world all at once, I'm going to do it. So stay tuned. Pretty sure we're going to see this happen again next year. But between now and then, you know, I've had a handful of you already ask me if there's any way we can do something similar, maybe not 13 hours plus, but something similar on a semi-regular basis. And I was talking with my wife, Brenda, about this and, you know, it's a time commitment, that sort of thing. But man, it was so much fun. And if I can make this part of what Monster Kid Radio offers you, well, then I want to do it. So maybe on a quarterly basis, we'll do something like this. Not going to do anything else this year just because there's so much more to do by the end of 2019. But stay tuned for 2020 because I think we will be doing more watch-alongs in the future. And speaking of the future, let's talk about what's going to come up on the next two weeks of Monster Kid Radio. Now, I don't know which order I'm going to release these in because I don't have one of the recordings in the virtual hopper just yet. But I do have a recording that I did with horror host extraordinaire fellow Fory award winner. Mr. Lobo. I chatted with him just the other day, and this was the first time that I actually spoke with him in any kind of long conversation. I did chat with him years ago on Monster Kid Radio for a few minutes, but this was an honest-to-goodness deep conversation that we had about everything that he does as a monster kid, as a horror host, why he does what he does. Talked about his Life Achievement Award, the Foray at Monster Bash. Talked about the new DVDs that are coming out from Alpha Video. It was just a great conversation. It was pretty chill, and I look forward to chatting with Mr. Lobo again. He was a really nice guy. Like I said, that recording is just sitting here waiting for post-production. The other recording that I'm hoping to get within the next few days will be about <laughs> the movie. The movie. Manos, The Hands of Fate. No, it's not going to be a breakdown of the film. I'm going to wait for that for something else down the line. But there's just something about Manos that captures people's imaginations. And a couple of those people not only allowed their imagination to be captured by Manos, but then did something about it. They used that Manos inspiration to fuel their own creations. So I'm hoping to set up a recording between Stephen D. Sullivan, myself, and Anthony Wendell in the very near future, and I'd really like to run that sometime this month as well. What's going to play next week and the week after that? Well, you're just going to have to stay tuned to Monster Kid Radio to find out. Of course, we're available at monsterkidradio.net, YouTube, the Apple Podcast Store, and well, anywhere else you listen to podcasts, you can find me. Between now and next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories is copyright 2019 Jerry Green. And the song Jet Jaguar, rock version, is owned by the band The Nick Adams from their album The Nick Adams. And you can find them over at thenickadams.com, but it is hard to find their music online anymore. So, darn, I guess you're just going to have to listen to the Jet Jaguar song here. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Ciao. <laughs>